If you have your Bibles, please turn it to Haggai chapter 1. So turning there, I do want to thank the elders and Pastor Henry for their invitation uh, to my wife and I. Uh, we had a great time this weekend uh, just getting to know uh, the different ministry teams uh, from outreach to family. And uh, it's just a joy to see your heart for the ministry and the trajectory that this church is going uh, my wife and I are excited, and uh, we're just hearing uh, your love for each other and for the Lord. It's an encouragement to us. With that said, uh, please stand for the reading of Scripture. We're going to read Haggai chapter 1. Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius, the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, it is a time for, your, for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvested little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain, bring wood, and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I call for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnants of the people, obeyed the voice of of the Lord, their God, the words of Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord, their God, had sent them. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. <laughs> then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and, and the spirit of, the, of all the remnants of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. Lord, we ask you to be with us this morning as we look through this text, where we want to be able to glean the lessons that you want us to learn. Lord, we know that the Old Testament is written as an example for us, and may we learn from their mistakes so that we can honor you in our life. Thank you for this time in your son's precious name. Amen.
As I look back at my life, especially the last 10 years when I was in Southern California, one of the things that discourages me the most is spiritual apathy. It's easy for me when I was in college and in seminary to just look at an atheist or a or agnostic or someone that just believes in another faith, and I know exactly where they're at because it's pretty clear cut. They refuse to believe in the God of the Bible and they believe in something else or believe nothing at all. But yet the hardest thing for me in my life as a believer, and I'm sure here as well, is a person that are struggling, that's struggling with spiritual apathy. People that are spiritual apathetic will profess to be Christians. They'll go to church. They will even agree with the, the biblical doctrine that you and I hold. Yet they don't seem interested in spiritual things. If you ask them how their devotion is in God's word, how their reading is going, they'll look at you and say something like, yeah, it's okay. When you ask them how their prayer life has been and how, how they've seen the Lord work in their life through prayer, they'll say, hmm, yeah, I pray, usually before meals, but I do pray, just not too much. And when you ask them about how they are in terms of fighting sin and mortifying sin so they can live in a, in a way that's glorifying to the Lord, they'll say, hmm, it's okay. Their answers would often be vague, and it, it seems like they're not interested in spiritual things. If you look, if you talk to someone, or you are someone that's spiritual apathetic, it's hard to know whether or not you are just going through a rut in your life. Maybe you're just struggling in some sin right now. Or maybe you're, not, you're never a believer to begin with. Perhaps some of you are spiritually apathetic because that's just the fruit of your, your lack of faith in the Lord. And hell is filled with people like that. Hell is filled with people that are spiritually apathetic. They spend their whole life assuming that they are one with the Lord. They assume that they are a, person, a people of God. But yet when they get to hell... They will be, they'll be shocked to realize that they were never one of the Lord's. That's why in Matthew 7, uh, God uh, tells a story of people that are saying, uh, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And yet the Lord tells them, depart from me, for I never knew you. This text today that we're going to go over, it's not for your friend. It's not for your family member. It's not for the person sitting next to you. But it's for you yourself. This is supposed to be a self-evaluation. The intent of this is for us to look into our own hearts. At the end of 2 Corinthians, Paul tells us to evaluate our own hearts. And this is what we're going to do today. We're going to evaluate our own souls. Are we spiritually apathetic because we're in sin? Or are we spiritually apathetic because we don't even love the Lord to begin with? In the background to this book, if you know the Old Testament, God promised the nation of Israel that if you are faithful to me, I will bless you. But if you disobey me, I will curse you. And you read through the most the entire history of the Old Testament, the Israelites were spiraling down from, uh, from judges all the way until the end of Second Kings. The nation of Israel became hardened to the things of the Lord. They, they sold themselves into the bondage of sin. They worshipped other gods. And at the end of Second Kings, the very last king, he was pulled out of the land of Israel with a hook in his mouth like a fish. And they were in captivity for 70 years. The Babylonians captured them for 70 years. And, they were, and during that 70 years, they were wondering, when are they ever going to go back to the land? When, are, when is God ever going to bring them and deliver them from the hands of the Babylonians? And by God's sovereign plan, he raised up a king named King Cyrus. In Isaiah 44, it tells us that Cyrus will come 
and he will bring the people back and they will lay a foundation for the temple. And what's amazing about this is that King Cyrus was prophesied 200 years before he came about. He was named, he was named by name in the Old Testament, in, in Isaiah, and pointed that there was going to be a king, a, a Gentile king that is going to bring the nation of Israel back to the land and they will lay the foundation and that's what happened. King Cyrus came. He set a decree for the Jews to go and rebuild the temple. And 50,000 of them returned. In Ezra chapter 1, we see that there were 50,000 Jews that came. And they were able to clear some of the rubble. And they laid the foundation. They were able to even offer little of the sacrifices. But they did not do this without any oppositions. There were some Samaritans that were around that told uh, the king that if you let these Jews build uh, this temple. If you let these Jews come back into their land, they will overthrow you once they have the opportunity. And yet, over time, they stopped working. They were discouraged by the opposition from the world, and they stopped working. They laid a foundation, and they left it there. And for 16 years, they did not do anything. And this is where the book of Haggai begins. It begins 16 years after they laid the foundation this book picks up 16 years after, and they stopped the work that Yahweh co- commanded them to do. Yahweh then raised up a prophet. His name is Haggai. Uh, not much is known about him. He's one of the last three prophets in the Old Testament. His name means festival, which implies that he was probably born during the time of a festival. But at this time, the Jews had no temple, they had no king on the throne, and they were a shadow of what they had in the past. There was a rubble, there was memories of the past, there was small remnants of people, and they have a task to fix the temple. In spite of their spiritual and national responsibilities, they did not care about the Lord. They did not care about the things of God. Their apathy led them to live for themselves and not for the Lord. And it's sad because the, the Jews started so well right when they got that decree to build the temple. 50,000 of them went. They were the right amount of people. They were, right, they, they, had a, they were in the right location. And they had the right desires. They were exactly where they needed to be. They started out strong, but time eroded their ability to finish strong. I wonder how many of us here today are like the Jews in this passage. I wonder how many of us started off strong. You grew up in a Christian home. You were exposed to Christianity when you were young. You're in a solid church. You're in small group. You're in different Bible studies. You're taught to go and share the gospel to, the, to, to make disciples of all the nations. And you, wanted to, and you did that for a while. But maybe after five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years later, Christianity doesn't seem as interesting anymore. You're not as on fire for God anymore. What once was a a bright light, a, a, a burning flame for the Lord, is now just a flickering ember. And spiritual apathy comes in multiple ways. Sometimes it comes in the form of failure to pray. You don't you don't think about the Lord. You don't ask for the Lord for anything, so you cease to pray. You don't go to Him with your concerns. You don't thank Him for anything. You cease to pray. Sometimes failure to, to just read and meditate on scripture. You, you just, you're, you're asked to read the Bible. So, oh, I'll just read it another time. Just push it aside. Other times, it's a failure to apply God's word. You, go to a, you listen to a sermon or you go to a Bible study, and the thing that you think about is not what I need to do uh, to make myself more Christ-like, but you think about your friend. Like, oh, Bob, I know the sermon. Oh, Bob needs to hear the sermon. Preach it, Ray. Preach it. Bob needs the sermon. Preach it louder. It's failure 
to understand that God's word is for us individuals, not for everyone. It's not supposed to be for another person. We're supposed to evaluate our own hearts. Sometimes a failure to evangelize. Spiritual apathy comes when we fail to, to, want, to love and care for the lost. We no longer fear or are afraid of hell anymore, and it just kind of, we're desensitized to it, so we aren't afraid of it, and we don't want to warn our loved ones about the judgment that's at hand. In all of these situations, whether it's praying and reading or meditating, we're really backsliding into your old self because non-Christians don't pray. Non-Christians don't read Scripture. Non-Christians don't apply God's words into their life. Non-Christians don't evangelize. This is who we were before we were saved. For the Christian life, we are either running or we're not. We're either fighting or we're losing. There are no timeouts in our Christian walk. There are no half times in our Christian walk. We just need to constantly grow in dependence of the Lord every single day. So how can we today overcome spiritual apathy? How can we overcome spiritual apathy? Test yourself. Are you spiritual athletic because you never loved the Lord to begin with? Or are you just struggling in your sin right now? There are three things I want to consider that we need to consider if we want to fight spiritual apathy. Three things that we need to consider. And this in your bulletins. The three things that we need to consider. First, let's consider the provision of God, verse 1 to 6. Second, consider the punishment of God, verse 7 to 11. And third, consider the presence of God, verse 12 to 15. Our first point this morning, consider the provision of God, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, now, this is significant. We usually look over, look over dates. We don't really care about dates. But this is, Haggai put this in there to be provocative. It's supposed to be offensive to the Jews that are reading this. Because in the Jewish mind, the way that they keep time is they have a significant Jewish figure and in the festival and in the harvest time that they're in. So it would be king, and whether it's like Solomon or David, and then in this time of this harvest. Darius is a Gentile king. He is not... A, a king from the, from the line of Judah. He is a Gentile king. And this is a show that the Jews can't even keep their own time anymore. It's supposed to show them that, look, you, when you look at the calendar, when you try to keep time, you can't keep track of it anymore. Every time they look at the calendar, they'll be reminded by the fact that they failed. They'll be reminded by the fact that they did not keep the promises of the Lord. It's like if China and America got into war right now and China won this war. Suddenly, we won't be celebrating July 4th anymore. We'll be celebrating Chinese New Year's. I know this is a Chinese audience, so everyone's like, oh, yeah, we do that anyways. <laughs> but then we won't be looking, we won't be able to celebrate anything. Every time we look at a calendar, it'll be the lunar calendar instead of the Gregorian calendar. It's a way to, uh, to show the people that they are under someone else's rule, that they are no longer, that you can't even celebrate the things that you want anymore. And this is why the date is there. The, the fact they show Darius is to remind them every single day of how far they have fallen. Notice that, notice that, is that the word of the Lord came, and he spoke through Haggai, and he spoke to two people, two significant people. He spoke to Zerubbabel and Joshua, and Zerubbabel, his name is forgotten in Babylon, and he was a governor, and Joshua, he was, a, he was the priest at the time. And it's significant because in the Persian mindset, the way that they want to rule is not by taking control over everything. Rather, they delegate. They have different people go into their lands, and they, and they allow them to, to, to raise their families and run their, uh, their culture the way that they like. That's a way to give them liberty, but at the same time, overseeing them. 
So the king, uh, the king Darius designated both Zerubbabel and Joshua. These are supposed to be a mediator between the, govern- the king at the time and the people of Israel. Now, they were called to go and rebuild the temples. So these people were intended to go and, and give information. Like the governors will to talk with the priests on what they need to rebuild the temple. They'll negotiate. They'll figure out ways in which the, gov- the, the entire nation can be benefited from the Jews' work. And they were the leaders of Israel. But yet, you can tell that even though they had a leader, they had a governor, they had a priest, they were not lacking anything. They just lacked direction. Look at verse 2. Notice that it said, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Now this phrase, Lord of hosts, appears in the Bible multiple times. And it's easy for us to overlook this. In the Psalms, it shows up several hundred times. And it's significant because the Persian king, when they are on the throne, they see themselves as God. So King Darius here, he viewed himself as a god. And Haggai writes, thus says the Lord, so they can remember that, yes, they are under a rule of an earthly king, but who they really obey is the king of kings. Who they truly submit to is the king of kings. Notice verse 2, thus said the Lord, this people says. It's interesting that Yahweh said this people and not my people. He said this people and not my own people. When I was in grade school, I knew exactly how I did in school based on the way that my teacher addressed me to my mom. When I did well, my grade school teacher would look at me and say, you call, they'll call me by my name, they'll say, Raymond. Raymond did, did good today. He did his homework. He didn't throw anyone in the trash can. He did good today. But when I was bad, my grade teacher will address me by a different name. Uh, to my mom, the teacher will no, no longer say Raymond, but instead he'll say, your son. Your son didn't do the homework today. Your son didn't do his classwork. Your son threw that kid in the trash again. And I always wish that my mom was, like, witty enough to, like, make a comeback to the teacher. Which was, I was hoping that she would say something like, well, how is your student going to listen, to listen to me in my home when your student isn't going to listen to you in your classroom? My mom is a lot more classier than that, and... Uh, you know, she's not like that. But the idea is, but you get the idea, right? You get the idea that the reason why people did that, the, the way they address as someone else or this people or, or this other person, is to, is to show a disconnect between the relationship that they have. Yahweh showed that there's a disconnect in the relationship that he has with, God, with his own people. The people failed to live according to what God called them to be. They failed to keep their end, to, end of the covenant. And notice what they said. This people says, the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. They essentially said that there wasn't time. There wasn't time to rebuild. There wasn't time for the Lord. They just kept making excuses after excuses after excuses. The Jews' actions contradicted what it meant to be the people of God. It was an inconvenience for them to worship the Lord. I wonder what type of excuses that you and I make when it comes to not doing the things of the Lord, when it comes to Bible reading, when it comes to prayer, when it comes to going to Sunday school, when it comes to going to church or going to Bible study or evangelizing the lost, I wonder what type of excuse we make. And the most common excuse is this. There isn't time. There isn't time to read the Bible. There isn't time to pray. There isn't time to go to church. There's other things I need to do. If you truly keep track of your own time, though, can you objectively say that your entire day is loaded with work, that you can't find any time for the Lord? 
We, we don't have time to, to read, uh, but we have time for social media. We don't have time to pray, but we have time to take naps. We don't have time to go to Bible study because the warriors are on. These are excuses that we make because we don't, we don't prioritize the Lord. Time itself is a resource that, God, that only God gave. Time is, 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 is from the Lord. And if, you want, if you're stuck in spiritual apathy, you need to remember that the time that's given to you is a stewardship from God. The Jews forgot that. The Jews forgot the, the seriousness and the stewardship of the precious, and the preciousness of time. God doesn't need anything. God doesn't need anything from us. But how, but how we respond to what he's given us reveals to, reveals to us and the Lord how we view the Lord. God doesn't need anything from us, but how we use what he's given us shows us how we view the Lord. How you use your time matters. And understand that time is limited. God only gives you a certain amount of time in this, in this earth. You cannot work for more time. Any time that you spend or lose, it's, it's gone. It'll never come back. There's, reason, there's a reason why in Ephesians 5, it tells us to walk in wisdom and, uh, and be mindful of day for the days are evil. Redeem the time for the days are evil. There is a reason for that because time slips away. It's precious and there's no way for us to get that back. Remember that the Lord has given us time as a stewardship. Verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, is it, is it time for you yourself to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? And putting in, in verse 4, just putting in a modern day vernacular, it would be something like this. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your three-car garage, in your home with 17 rooms, in your home with the, with the hot tub and the swimming pool and the basketball courts? This phrase, paneled houses, is, is to signify luxury. These leaders here and the Jewish people were living in luxury while the house of God was in ruins. The priests and the governor and all the people uh, were living in their life while the house of God was, in, was desolate. This word desolate means ruins, it's in shambles. Again, this shows us that the reason, the, the thing that, the reason why they did not rebuild the temple was not that they did not have the materials but they lacked desire. The issue is in the heart. The Jews had time to work on it. They just didn't want to. The, the, the Jews had material to work on this, but they did not want to. They didn't see it as important. We all need to be better stewards of what the Lord has given us. If you want to fight spiritual apathy, you need to remember that your time and all the resources and everything that you have in this life is from the Lord. Romans eleven thirty six tells us, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Look at, notice in verse 5. Now, therefore, thus saith the Lord, consider your ways. God sees their apathy. God sees their lack of desire to serve him. And he tells them to consider your ways. It literally means set your heart on your way. Be mindful of where your heart is because it tells you where you, where you need to go. If your heart is away from the Lord, then you, will do, then you will go away from the Lord. But if your heart is for God, you will run to him. Be mindful in your heart because, it's the tra- because it's the, it sets the trajectory of your life. God punished them for their apathy by removing the desires to enjoy their labor. 
Look at verse 6. You have sown much, but harvested little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. All of the things that they worked on, all of the things that they strive for, ended up fading and not giving them the satisfaction that they want. They assume that in order to feel fulfilled in this life, to feel satisfied that they need certain things. In a New American Standard, the word enough is used three times here to show that it's not that they didn't have anything. They just never had enough. They were just always accumulating for themselves, and they were never satisfied. Again, it shows that this not, they didn't, it's not that they didn't have any sufficient means. It's not that they didn't have enough time. They just chose not to do the things of God. They had so much in their life, but instead of using it to, to honor the Lord and to serve the Lord or even other people, they, 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 what, they, did, they had everything and they used it to serve themselves. And oftentimes God will remove pleasure to show how vain and worthless the things are. They had every physical need, but they were spiritually deficient. Spiritual apathy comes when we fail to consider all that the Lord has provided for us. We forget God's provision, so we serve ourselves. The Israelites were given much, and they only invested in themselves. My question for you today is this. What are you investing in? What are the things that you're putting your time and effort into? Are there things of temporal nature, or do they have eternal significance? Both the, the Jews in this passage and ourselves can cultivate a heart of spiritual apathy when we forget the provision of God. Consider that all the resources that God provided are from him. All things belong to the Lord. They're his. To overcome spiritual apathy, consider that all that you have and praise God and use those things to glorify God and to serve others. Not only do we need to consider our, uh, God's provision to fight spiritual apathy, but we also need to consider the punishment of God. And you want to overcome spiritual apathy we need to not only consider the provision of God, but also the punishment of God. Our second point, consider the punishment of God. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Again, this is the same phrase, set your heart in your way. Consider your heart and where it's leading you. The Israelites failed to obey God for so many years, and God explains how they can be reconciled. God uh, they, in their apathy, did nothing for 16 years, and God afflicted them, and he told them, if you want this affliction to go away, here's what you need to do to reconcile. To, to reconcile. And it shows us in verse 8, go up to the mountain, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, then I may be pleased with it, and be glorified, says the Lord. God commands them, God tells them means to be reconciled, go to the mountains, and get supplies for the temple. The Israelites kept investing in their own pleasures and never got what they hoped for. And the remedy of that, the remedy for them to, to, to enjoy life and to lighten in things of this world is to, is to obey God. We find out later that they actually had abundance to do it. They, like, they looked at Mount, there was a, a lot of uh, material that they could get. Again, it's not a lack of, of material, but it's a lack of desire. And their, and their lack of desire dishonored and displeased the Lord. God was dishonored by their spiritual apathy. God was not pleased with their actions. 
Have you ever considered that spiritual apathy actually goes against the characteristic of a believer? Spiritual apathy focuses on yourself instead of the Lord. You dwell on the things that's in your own heart instead of dwelling things that's pleasing to the Lord. You want to serve yourself instead of serving God. And yet it's interesting that we can be in the right place with the right people and the right time, yet still fail to honor the Lord. And this is what the Israel was like. Israel were in the right place. They had the right desire. They had the right supplies. They have everything, but yet they fail to honor God. We can fool even our own friends in the church, but yet we cannot fool the Lord. Spiritual apathy is in the heart, and the Lord sees our heart. Look at verse 9. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. All of the work of the Israelites accumulated. Everything that they've done was blown away. It didn't, call, it didn't cause them to consider the fact that the, what's happening is from the Lord. They would spend their day gathering different things, and they'll bring it back home, and they'll go out and gather some more. And when they get back, the thing that they gathered the first time is completely gone. They did not make the connection. The reason why they're not getting the things that they want is because of their disobedience to the Lord. They did not see their need for repentance. So why did God do all of this? It was to get their attention. He was telling them that they decided to leave God's house desolate while each of them ran to their own house. They ran to their own house. So they weren't even living in like a community, in like a hotel or something. It was, they, they had their own places to live. They cared about their own affairs. Spiritual apathy often comes when a Christian fails to obey the Lord. And it's constantly, it usually comes when a person's constantly in a cycle of self-indulgence. All that we do must be through a grid of honoring the Lord and giving him the most glory. We need to stop being self-centered and Christ-centered. And we try, and it's so easy for us to, to spend on things that have such temporal value, right? Like it's so, it's, it's easy to exert energy on things that have no lasting value think about how how many times that we binge on netflix you know, we, could, we can watch netflix for hours and hours and hours yet when it comes to prayer it's maybe just five minutes and it seems hard just for five minutes of prayer you can spend hours and hours reading the, the social media feed and tweets and everything yet when it comes to reading scripture it's hard to just finish a chapter in scripture we aren't that much from the Jewish, of old, the Jewish people of old. The more we devote our times to things outside of God, the less appealing God becomes. And the less appealing God becomes to us, the more we grow in our apathy towards God. Verse 10. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. Their apathy led God to withdraw from their blessing. It's interesting that it said the, gra- the earth has withheld its produce. That means that even if they had a whole tub of, res- of water or like a whole reservoir of water and they tried pouring it into the land, there's no way that there will grow any crops because God withheld it. God is the one who causes the plants to grow and he withheld it from them. No matter what they tried to do, the earth will not produce anything for them. The land was hit with a drought. And it's withheld from both the sky and the ground. And Israel, Israel lost sight of their own priorities. Israel cannot obtain success because God withheld it from them. They were withheld from spiritual, they were withheld from physical blessings because of their spiritual life. 
Sometimes the greatest act of mercy, the greatest act of grace from God is to remove us from self-indulgence, is to remove us from the satisfaction of the things of this world. God provides a way to find true and lasting joy that's only found in him alone. God is the greatest delight, yet we sell God for something far, far less. For God to get our attention, to God, for God to waken us from our apathy is an act of grace. And this is what's happening right in, in this passage with the Israelites. God was getting their attention by removing what they thought brought them joy. God caused a famine in the land. And Second Kings, that's what happened. The, the Israelites were offering their kids uh, to Molech, and they were uh, worshiping Baal. And God withheld the land. He, gave, he set a drought on the land so they would not depend on the, on the foreign gods, but to turn and to obey the true and only God. Had the Israelites considered about what's going on, they would have remembered the fact that that's what, the, that's what their forefathers did. That's what the people in the past has done. They failed to obey God, and there was famine. There was a drought. But yet they did not make that connection. They failed to make that connection between their sin and God's punishment for them. Look at verse 11. I call for a drought on the land, on the mountain, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. None of their actions produce anything good because of their spiritual apathy towards God. Indifference is a sin because God expects us to devote and love him with all our heart, mind, and strength. We are we are we are to be completely devoted to him. Look at what the Israelites delight in. They delight in grain. They delight in wine. They delight in oil. They delight in cattle. These are all things that are from the earth. These are all things that are temporal. The weariness and exhaustions of their labor will not be blessed by God. God punishes believers for their waywardness, their negligence, and their apathy. The consequences of their apathy is that they will experience temporal punishment. God did not disown them, but he did afflict them. The Israelites were apathetic for 16 years, and God punished them to remind them of the greater punishment that they, that they would have had had they not known the Lord. Had, not, had, the, had the Lord did not reveal himself to them, there was a certain consequence that they would have experienced. And God withheld that from them because he let himself known to them. It's exactly what parents do for their kids. When parents spank their child at home, they hope to train them about what happens when they disobey at home so that when they go out of the home, that they won't break the law, that they won't be arrested, there won't be a greater consequence. That's why parents discipline their kids, so to protect them from a greater punishment. God is doing the exact same thing to the Israelites. He's saying, if you, if you choose to reject me, I'm going to punish you to remind you of the greater punishment that you missed. For us Christians, we understand this. We understand that when we are being afflicted, it's a taste, it's a, for, it's a little glimmer of taste of what people in hell are experiencing. Because people in hell are experiencing the full weight of God's wrath. But when we are being punished in this life because of our sin, it's just to remind us of what, what type of grace that God is. And it forces us to look to the Lord. Punishment is used to correct. It's, it's used to correct to, to reveal to what is best for us. And for all of us, when God disciplines us, it's temporal so that we can look to the eternal. It's what's best for us to remind us that God is what is truly best for us. Notice that the Israelites, 
did not reject the Lord either. They did not deny God. Their, their disobedience was subtle. They probably thought, look, look, we're not sacrificing babies anymore, so, you know, it's okay. It's all, all is well. So what's the big deal? I wonder how many of us do the same thing. I wonder how many of us think like the Israelites. You know, we, we, instead of meditating, it's like you might think to yourself, well, look, I might not be meditating on Scripture. I might not be dwelling on things of Scripture, but at least I'm not watching pornography. Look, I'm not, I might not be praying or spending time with the Lord in prayer, but I'm not cheating on my taxes. We often justify spiritual apathy by stating what sin we're not committing. But the reality is that spiritual apathy itself is a sin. It is a sin because it's not as overt as the other sins, and it may not even hurt other people, but it's still a sin because it is a lack of love and devotion to Christ. You either discipline yourself from sin or God discipline you for your sins. Hebrews 12, you know this passage where God disciplines us so that we can yield the peaceful fruit and righteousness. God disciplines us because he loves us. The Lord can inflict physical pain to draw us to spiritual reality. God wants us to enjoy life, but we cannot enjoy life outside of God. Not only do we need to consider our provision and punishment to fight spiritual apathy, but we also need to consider God's presence. Our last point, consider the presence of God. Look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnants of the people, obeyed the word of God, obeyed the voice of, their, of the Lord their God, and the host of Haggai, and the the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people showed the reverence for the Lord. Israel, uh, the Israel's leader repented as well as the remnants. They heard God's word, they considered it, and they obeyed it. They listened with attentiveness, they were convicted by it, and they acted. They were shaken out of their apathy. They understood that their apathy was offense to the Lord, and they repented. They turned away from it, and, that caused, them, and they caused them to have a reverence. This word reverence is the word fear. They did, not, they did not revere God, which caused them to be apathetic. The Israelite began to show reverence, which is really a, a love for the Lord. I think this was what happens to us as Christians. Sometimes we, at first, when we, we understand the doctrines of hell, and we understand that, oh, God saved us from hell, and we are afraid of the Lord because he is righteous and a holy God, and we love him because he's delivered us from that place. And then that, that, that love and excitement lasts for maybe a little while, and that fear as well. But over time, the doctrine of hell becomes, oh, it's just a doctrine. I don't need to worry about it anymore because it's not the place I'm going to. It's a, it's, it's a lack of reverence for God. It's a lack of reverence for who he is. The implication for the Israelites is that their apathy showed their lack of reverence for the Lord. Apathy is rooted in the lack of reverence for God. Whenever someone is apathetic towards the spiritual things, it's a loss of reverence and fear of God. God is no longer someone that they fear anymore. And again, I think sometimes it's a disproportion in terms of the doctrines that we understand. God is forgiving, so why do I need to fight sin? God is sovereign, so why do I need to evangelize? We need to recalibrate our minds and uh, recalibrate our mind and understand that God, the God that we worship, is indeed amazing and great. Fearing the Lord gives a greater love for God's word. That's what happened. They had a reverence for God's word, and they, they obeyed it. 
the Israelites acknowledged the truth of the rebuke from the Lord, and they repented. And God is always right when it comes to matters of the heart. God is never wrong when he looks into your heart and he calls you a sinner, a wicked sinner. And the Israelites understood that. All 50,000 of them repented. They went up to the hills and they got the supplies. And these people, these Israelites, for 16 years did nothing for the Lord. And now they're making haste to get supplies for the temple. Verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. The Lord assured them that he is with them. He is assuring the Jews. The Jews were afraid uh, because of their sin. They were afraid of the Lord. But God assures them that, they, that he is with them. There's a continual presence with them. This word, I am with you, is a customary word. It's, it's, it's a merciful guiding. When Moses uh, was going to go and, rep- and, and deliver the Israelites out of Egypt, he used the same word, I am with you. In Jeremiah 1.8, when Jeremiah was commissioned by the Lord to be the weeping prophet to Israel, he told them that I am with you. They knew, the Israelites knew, that they would be protected and, pro- and provided for. God wanted to assure them by curing their anxiety so that they can begin the work. There's something that happens to us when we know that there's authoritative figure around us. It either causes, in the negative, it will cause us to fear. In the positive, it will cause us to alleviate fear. In the negative, it will cause us to grow in the fear, while the positive, it dampens fear. Example of a negative uh, presence of someone, it's, it's the police. You know, you, you, know that when there, you, you know there's a police officer there, you tend to obey the law more. When I, when I worked at Grace Church, where, I, where my office is, is near the exit of Grace Church. And sometimes there would be police officers hiding in the bushes with their little speed gun thing. And they would just check who's going uh, over the speed limit. And I remember one day, it felt like almost every 20 minutes, you'll hear, what, what? And then they'll go. And then 20 minutes later, what, what? And then you know that sound. You know that's like, okay, the police is pulling us over. We, we got a speed, speeding ticket. And I remember when all of us left Outreach that day, we knew, okay, the cop is right there. We need to drive according to the speed limit. On the positive, it alleviates fear. A few weeks ago, my wife and I went to a GOC retreat, and uh, one of the staffer's sons brought his bicycle, and he's, he asked me to race him. He wanted, to, he wanted me to race him on foot while he's on a bicycle. That's totally fair. <laughs> And when, he, when we're going, his dad told him, okay, if you need to slow down, use the handbrakes. Do not put your feet on the ground. Use the handbrakes. And then we were going down a slope. And it was going really, really fast. And I remember telling Josiah, like, he's like, slow down. And guess what he did? He put his feet on the ground. He flipped forward, and he face-planted onto the concrete. And there was a loud scream. And then he was like, it, was, it wasn't that bad. It was like a scratch on his head. And he had some, he was bleeding some where, but, but I, didn't, I felt bad for like maybe 20 seconds because his dad didn't even feel bad. It's like, oh, whatever, it's, it's okay. He's still walking. We're good. We're good. <laughs> and when his dad came, he was, uh, just, I was hugging his dad's leg. He was like crying and weeping. And he's like, you're, you're, you're a tough boy, right? He's like, yes, I'm a tough boy. Get back on the bike. And then he's like, no, no, I don't want to. And he's held his dad leg some more. He said, get back on the bike. And he's still crying and weeping like, no, he doesn't want to. And the last time he said, Get back on the bike. I am with you. So then he was at, with fear and, and you know, pain. He went back on the bike, and his dad pushed him back up the, uh, back up the hill. 
God does both. God is omnipresent. So we know that when we are tempted to sin, when we want to uh, compromise, God is there. And that should cause a fear in our heart to obey the Lord. But if we fall into sin, if we compromise a little bit, and we ask God for forgiveness, he will forgive us. He will be there for us. He will always be there, and he will give us the ability to honor him with our lives. Look at verse 14. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnants of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. God moved their spirit so that they uh, repented and gave them the ability to, to work. Man cannot overcome spiritual apathy without the grace of God. Most people that I talk to are spiritual apathetic. They'll say the things that they need to do or what they should do. They'll go to church. They'll read the Bible. They'll pray. But they don't actually go to God and ask for the ability to do anything. They don't ask for God to, to help them with their spiritual apathy. They try to overcome it by themselves, but to no avail. And God promises the people that he will be there for those who need him. Those who cry out to him, he will be there. The most obvious solution for spiritual apathy is to go to God. The Israelites were, the Israelites were served to begin working on the temple. God will provide us the grace to do all things to his glory. Notice verse 15. On the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. Now if you compare it to the first verse, you'll notice that there's a 23-day difference. There's a difference. Why is it that there's a 23-day difference? If they repented, why didn't they build the temple right away? Well, it's because in those 23 days, they were delegating. They are figuring out who to do, delegating responsibility, who's going to go gather this type of material, who's going to go gather that type of material. And this shows us that God wasn't really, he doesn't care about the temple. He's only, he only cares about the, the heart or where the Israelites were at. You can be spiritually apathetic and still seem like, you love the things of the world. It seems like you love the things of the world outwardly. Yet God is not concerned about the heart. God doesn't care what type of ministry you're doing. God doesn't care how much you're evangelizing. God cares about your heart. Where is your heart? Consider your own heart. God doesn't care about what you do, but he cares about your affections. If you look back in this entire chapter, in this book in particular, you notice that the issue that they had the reason why they had apathy was that they did not prioritize God. For 16 years, the nation did not prioritize God, which caused them to be apathetic, which led them to their punishment. They were confronted, but yet they repented. What about you, Christian? You may have been in church for a while. You may profess to be a Christian for a while. But how long have you put aside the things of the Lord? How long have you been apathetic towards God? For the Christian, consider your ways. You might be struggling with it now, but consider your ways. Consider, just like the Israelite, consider, consider the provision that you got from the Lord. Consider the, the punishment that you've escaped from. And consider that God will be there for you. No matter how much time you've wasted, no matter how far you ran from the Lord, if you just turn and repent, God will be there. You don't need to truck back several thousand miles to be with the Lord. The moment you repent, he will be there. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're spiritually apathetic, if you're not interested in the things of the Lord, consider your ways as well. Understand that your path 
the path that you're living on right now, the path that you're going on right now leads to damnation and destruction. The path that you are going towards leads to eternal judgment. Consider the eternal separation from God. Consider the fact that if you reject God and you died right now, you'll enter into judgment for all of eternity. There is no way for you to come back and repent. It's, it's only in this life. Second Corinthians tells us that today is a day of salvation. Consider your eternal destiny. Consider the fact that you've sinned against God and that you need to be accountable to each and every single sin. At the same time, consider the gospel. Consider that Jesus Christ, he lived the perfect life. He did not waste any time. He, 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 he praised God for all its provision, yet he died on the cross on our behalf. Consider the sacrifice that he did. Consider the fact that he was on the cross, bloodied and naked for us. He was on the cross bearing the full wrath of God in our place. Consider the fact that he died and in three days he rose again showing us that we will one day have a lasting resurrection. Consider the gospel. Consider Jesus. Now, some of you guys who are non-believers have spent your entire life rejecting the Lord. You've sinned against the Lord over and over again. And the same thing for you. If you've rejected the Lord your entire life, just one repentance, just one act of God, asking God to forgive you, and he will be there. He will be, you'll be made right with him. You'll be reconciled to him. Consider your ways. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're completely unworthy of your love and mercy towards us. Despite our constant failures in honoring you with our lives, you're still so patient and kind towards us. Ask for all of us here today to consider our ways before you. Convict us of the sins that we can be made to enjoy sweet fellowship that we have with you. We do not deserve all that you have provided and continue to provide. Lord, may we be reminded of your goodness so we can delight in you. God, you are a good God, and all that you do is good. Grant us the grace to see you in that way throughout our lifetime. In your son's precious name, amen.